It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. There's an interesting energy when I think as human beings, we A, acknowledge our lack of knowledge and our ignorance to certain things that are happening on the planet. And then also willfully dive into certain frameworks of being and terminologies we've never heard before. And we're really excited to have Anuradha of the Kautha Collective Constellation, rather, here on This Might Get Uncomfortable. And Anuradha, as, as I was going through the Kautha Constellation website, there were so many things that popped out at me where I thought to myself, oh, I've never heard this term before. I've, ne- I've never heard this framework before. I'm so unfamiliar. It was It was such a wonderful moment of learning more about your work, which we're going to absolutely dive into today. There's so many subjects we want to cover with you. But one thing that immediately hit me was on your website, you were talking about a free online summit that you were a part of called the Radical Business Summit, which was this, I believe it was this past September, 2021. And one thing that immediately jumped out at me amongst so many things was the phrase anti-capitalist marketing. And I found myself sitting with that this morning and thinking, well, that seems, first of all, my first impression of it was almost like it's an oxymoron, anti-capitalist marketing. I was like, these are two diametrically opposed concepts. How can you market something and be anti-capitalist whilst doing it? And there's so many facets, of course, we want to cover about imperialism and supremacy and capitalism. We're diving into a lot of really deep pools with you today. But I want to start with this idea of anti-capitalist marketing, because I think that I have a wiring in my brain that tells me that somehow that's not possible. Like, how do I market to someone and do it with a sense of, oh, I don't want to you know, shove this product or this service down their throats or try and convince them that they absolutely need it or that their life is crap without it. So could we start there? I, I want to jump into that. What does that mean to you, anti-capitalist marketing? And how the heck do we even do that? Where do we even begin to approach that? That's such a good question. I think where I would start answering is going back to the root of what capitalism is. And so capitalism, so it wasn't the natural progression. A lot of people kind of think it is from the feudal system that it was like the only next progression is capitalism. In fact, it was codified laws and policies, especially by the upper classes, the bourgeois here in Western Europe. I'm speaking here from London, greater London. And there was very certain features that created what we have as capitalism. So the kinds of things, like I have a whole course where I talk about this, sowing post-capitalist seeds. We do a 14-week dive on what is capitalism and how we can think about seeding other possibilities beyond what we're in right now. But just for clarity, so people can follow along, some of the features you might recognize, because some of these changes came directly after the plague, right? So we're in a pandemic now. So there's parallels that have happened. 
So one of them is the enclosures. So we basically, there was common land that everyone could use. So where we, people could have like in Scotland here, there's the Highland Games, right? So you can have games, you can have community, you can have water, you know, there was, you could allow your animals to graze. If you didn't have a house, you could live on the commons. So there was a lot of freedom on these commons. And there was a series of laws even here in England that basically enclosed most of England. And those commons are still, right? So the upper classes did a whole lot of things, pushing people off the commons, putting hedgerows up to stop people. So that was a feature of capitalism, that this was a common public land. There was standard practice on how we might use it. And then it was taken away. There was propaganda campaigns around feminized. So they created this boundary of feminized labor. So here, it's not necessarily who's doing the labor. Generally, it's women and gender minorities. But the work becomes done in the private sphere versus the public sphere. And that labor, like care work, becomes degraded and so on, that is not valued and hence not paid. And the wages instead go to the husband. So you see the construction of the nuclear family. So there's very specific features that come to capitalism. And so when we think of capital, so, you know, like I said, there's so many more details here of the kinds of things that happen, the labor shortage after the plague and so on. And that's what we're up against right now, right? We've actually lost a lot of people during this pandemic. So Basically, how that gets translated into a marketing sense is with these features, we then, I mean, think about our ancestors. They wouldn't have had like a water bill. (laughs) They wouldn't have to have paid rent in the same ways we have to do now, right? There was, like I said, there was common land we could live and exist on. Now there's practically no space. You can be outside without having to spend money, maybe libraries, sidewalks, you know, there's like a few places, parks. So where can you be without the idea that I have to spend money, right? So my existence is like now there's a premium. I can't just be, I have to now earn or like I have to exchange my worth or my skill or my labor to get something. And then what's happening on the other end of that is is a Marxist term, I'm not saying I'm a Marxist, I'm just explaining the term primitive accumulation. So it's the idea that we, that somebody is profiting from our labor and we're seeing that in mass. So we might be making widgets, whatever that may be, and we make 10 widgets an hour. We're not getting paid the net benefit of making those 10 widgets. We're getting paid an hourly wage or maybe a salary wage. But what we're seeing in the pandemic is these billionaires creaming all of that up to the top to the CEOs and so on, and then giving pittance, not even a penny of per widget coming back down to the employee who's creating the real value. So we're seeing that in real time. So given that understanding of capitalism, how do we, there's a lot of possibility of how we can be anti-capitalist in the way we market. So like you mentioned, we, uh, Jason, you mentioned we can have like not having pain point marketing. So like, oh, you're really ugly and now you want to look beautiful or whatever. Like the health and wellness industry is a $72 billion industry, you know, that is making money 
off of people's insecurity and they've created the fat phobia and the ableism and everything else in this. So now we're going to profit from that. Or like this one's close to my heart. It's also a several billion dollar industry in just in the US, the yoga industrial complex. And instead of that money going back to the the indigenous people who created the arts and who are like dying in COVID, right? That's not where the money's going. It is going into these people's pockets who are, you know, who aren't giving back to those communities. And that's really painful because those, like, I'm not a yoga person specifically, but I am in lineage arts. And when our lineages are, you know, that energy of tending that knowledge from generation to generation is important. And when we're not respecting that. So I guess it depends on the industry. So we stop cultural appropriating. We maybe give back to the indigenous communities, you know, so that could be a way that we address this in our marketing. We could say we're going to attempt to be accessible. We, you know, so there's a lot of ways. I guess it depends. When I do consulting work, I don't think there's a checklist that like, here's the perfect thing everyone ought to do. We've got to come up with something that makes sense for our company, our ethos, our positionality, right? You know, which matters greatly, right? Where are we in this spectrum of systemic oppression? Wow. Thank you so much for articulating it that way. And the education, I mean, there's so many thoughts and feelings that come up and reflecting on how I've shown up and how I observe others showing up and the things that I want to see happen around the world. And I especially love that you said that there's no checklist because I think a lot of people want a checklist. They they want to feel like, okay, let's check this off and everybody's going to see us as being ethical. <laughs> people are going to see me as doing things right. And I think I've realized, especially through teaching myself about racism and how I've inadvertently in some cases participating in that. It's an ongoing learning. It's just like capitalism in some ways where there's so much to untether historically. There's so many ways that I've participated in this without knowing. And it reminds me, especially because we're recording this the week before, actually literally a week before Black Friday 2021. (laughs) I was thinking about in the past, Jason and I used to participate in Black Friday sales. And this is the first year in a while that we haven't. We talked about this in in a past podcast episode, how we had participated in bundle sales. I'm not sure if this was exactly what you had had done on your Ada, but collaborating with other people, I think can be a really wonderful thing. But in our experience, we were part of some sales that almost felt like MLMs, where the people at the top were benefiting so much more from this collective contribution. And my big frustration was that we were all contributing something of value. Now, how you decide, is everything equal? Is is something greater in value than others? It's so challenging to decipher, right? Uh, if you're all doing eBooks, like, is it based on someone's knowledge? Is it based on the topic? Is it based on the length? All of these factors when it comes to pricing. And these bundle sales would involve a ton of people collaborating and creating something of one value and then giving it some insane discount for Black Friday. And we had done this for years and years. But last year, Jason and I realized it didn't feel right to us. It gave me like this 
icky feeling. And one of that feelings was that the overall feeling I have about Black Friday, whereas I think it's wonderful on some level to have a few days a year where you offer massive discounts because people that don't want to or can't spend the money on certain things can get something of great value. But ultimately, that's also part of this big marketing push where big corporations are often benefiting from convincing somebody that they need something that they don't. And this year, I found myself like breathing a sigh of relief that I wasn't participating in a Black Friday sale because I've always resonated with the buy nothing ethos. Even though technically I'm not against people buying things, I'm planning on buying some things during Black Friday because I want them or I need them and they're a great price. So why not get it at a discount in my head? But I, the sigh of relief was like, wow, I feel like I, now I, I'm not going to be a hypocrite if I want to talk about buy nothing day because I'm not selling anything. So I feel like I can finally be like, hey, let's talk about maybe not buying things or buying less or really evaluating what you're purchasing, but also thinking about the motivations for something like Black Friday, which is also kind of a touchy day because it's centered around Thanksgiving, which has a lot of historical contexts that are disturbing for others. So I'm actually very curious how you feel about Black Friday, Anurada. Does this Is this something that you participate in? Why or why not? Is it something that you avoid or feel uncomfortable with? And you are in London. So I'm curious, is, is it as big in London as it is in the States? Yeah, it's really good questions to be thinking about. And I like that you are pondering, hey, where do I fit in this? How does it fit with my ethos and the way I want to be running a business and so on? I want to applaud that because both of you have, it seems, put in a lot of time to say, I want, we want to bring in more diverse speakers, you know, so you can see the commitment shining through in the choices you're making. And I think that's amazing. I want to just highlight that for a second. And do I participate? You know, actually, I haven't sold anything on Black Friday in my business, I don't think. I can't think that I have participated in anything like that. And I don't fault people who, like you said, for access reasons, maybe need to find things on sale because that just helps their money go a little bit further. So I don't think that's the thing. You know, that's, I think that's a lot of people have this misconception about anti-capitalism is that, oh, I'm just going to remove myself from the equation. And whether or not we like it, we're in relationship with capitalism. Like that's the fact. And we can't necessarily, like, there's no, you know, there's no good consumption under or ethical consumption under capitalism. So we have to kind of get rid of that purity, like, oh, yeah, it's going to be perfect. Like, that just doesn't exist. And in fact, that longing for purity is just more hierarchy, in my opinion. So I'm seeing questioning faces. So maybe uh, we could talk about that one a little bit more. But here, what I think we can participate in is harm reduction. So things like, you know, ultimately, like here with the, I'm neurodivergent, I'll just name that. So I don't often think linearly. And so I'm going to, at least I'm warning you now that I'm going to make a jump, but I hope I'll connect the dots for you all. That today's ruling against Rittenhouse, right, that he is allowed to walk free. So the thing, you know, so they're ultimately... I don't know if this is too radical to say, but it's my belief that we need to, like, I'm an abolitionist. We need to get rid of policing in the form it currently is. 
And so harm reduction strategies could be defunding the police or reallocating funding from police to other things, because you'll often find crime in other things, you know, that are, you know, you'll find crime because of lack of resources oftentimes. So if we actually invested in the communities, we can say that. And I think here in the UK, it's similar. With Black Friday, we're totally taking a capitalistic point of view. We are totally falling lockstep into what's going on in the US. So everything that's not nailed down, they are selling off. That's what the conservative government here is doing. And that's what Brexit has done. We It's a basic fire sale going on of everything of value in the UK. They are in the process of trying to sell off our NHS, our National Health Service. That's on the chopping block. They are doing a lot of really cruel things. They are putting raw sewage in our waterways because, yeah, that's the stuff happening here. And so when we think about participating in Black Friday, yeah, that's happening. And what I'm saying is what are harm reduction strategies we as business owners, as we as individuals can start participating in? Because it seems like it's quite a jump, right? Hey, I'm not going to spend any money, you know, but we do. We have a long history of currency use, right? And there's a whole history. We talk about that in our Sowing Post-Capitalist Seeds class. So it's, you know, we weren't always bartering. And in fact, the ways we talk about barter are very different. So what I'm saying is money is necessary. But we can reimagine how we start to engage with these things. I hope that actually makes sense. But that's the jump we're trying to make. And in the meantime, it's such a big jump. We can be doing harm reduction strategies. like So like you're saying, choosing not to participate or participating less. Or, you know, in the UK, they've started a Black Pound Saturdays. So every the first Saturday of the month, they encourage people to spend on Black black owned business, you know? So these are things like to me, spending with, you know, LGBT owned or people of color owned businesses, these are excellent strategies, right? Because it gives them much needed revenue and it supports them. And, you know, then it's not going into a big corporation's pockets, right? It's going into someone who's going to recirculate that money into their local economy, hopefully. Yes. And we certainly don't mind, by the way, that you uh, go off on tangents and don't always make perfect points because I'm very much like that for sure. And I believe Jason is in some way. So, And also anything goes here and we appreciate your perspectives because you're certainly bringing things to the table that no other guest has before. So thank you for sharing all of this with so much passion. And the whole aim of our show is not to censor your thoughts or feelings on this because it's so important for us to hear all different types of perspectives, whether we align with them or not, and hold space for each other in that way. And yes, I really loved that point. And as our facial expressions show, which for those that are listening and didn't realize that we have a YouTube channel. So if you want to see our facial expressions, you can go to youtube.com slash Wellevator, which is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. Or you can go to wellevator.com and get a full transcript of this because there's a lot of quotes that you may want to refer back to today. This idea of, I believe your quote was, the longing for purity is just more hierarchy. And for a moment, I felt confused by that. But then I realized it reminds me of things that we've heard a lot. And I'm so grateful for a movement around anti-hustle culture, which is a topic we've addressed maybe more than anything else on this show. <laughs> because Jason and I 
in these past two years of running the show have really feel like we're like awakening to that. We we are recovering hustlers. We are re-examining things and exactly why we've decided not to participate in Black Friday this year. It, it was it was like we felt like we had to do some of these things, right? Like this is what everybody else is doing. This is how everybody else is doing it. And a lot of things were bothering me about it. And that that hierarchy is part of it because a lot of that is privilege. It's the privilege of your gender, your skin color, your sexuality, where you live, like how you were raised, all these factors that would go into somebody's influence. And having been in the influencer marketing world for so long, a lot of it really doesn't resonate with me. And I'm I'm feeling a big shift is happening. It's like everything's starting to bubble and change and it excites me, but it's also getting really messy along the way. And when we think about these hierarchies and and as you said, that longing, I do believe is part of capitalism in this way, because as you also said earlier, Anurata, the just desire to constantly be proving ourselves and our value and always making money and like that. Jason has articulated this a ton, how draining that is. And we see burnout happening constantly. That is That word is probably the number one piece of feedback we hear from people. If, if we ask them how they're feeling, it's either going to be burnout or overwhelm. And the fact that that is so common, the fact that anxiety is also so common right now is like, should be that canary in the coal mine. Like, why are so many people, why is the majority of people that at least I'm speaking to using these terms? And I think a huge part of it is because we just never feel like we can rest. We never feel like we can stop because so much of our societies are built for that. But even in the times where we do stop, we're still longing for something that we don't have. We're still longing for or feeling guilty. I also know myself and a number of other people express that they don't feel like they can rest because when they do rest, they're still longing and they're still thinking about work or whatever they need to do. And even if they're not working, whatever's going on in their life, it still revolves around productivity. We had a guest on our show. I'm not exactly sure what data was. I want to guess around a year, but it might have been like nine months. Celeste Headley, who has written a number of amazing books on this and actually has a new book about race she talked in her book, Do Nothing, where we highlighted, she talks about our addiction to efficiency. And I'm curious now for to hear this in your own words, Anurada, what do you mean by the longing for purity and how that ties into hierarchy? Is it in alignment with how I view it or is there another level to this that, that I have not uh, understood yet? Do you think you could maybe rephrase that a little bit for me? Sure. Well, I'm curious when you you phrase that, I could tell you wanted to come back to it. I could tell that you wanted to dive deeper into that phrase or that quote of the longing for purity is just more hierarchy. Can you share with us in your own words, what did you mean by that? Because maybe my interpretation is in alignment with, with the root of what you were getting at there. Well, I think your interpretation's really, you know, a good starting point, to be honest, that where we are, like, that's what I was saying about positionality, where are we? And what I think the pandemic and the kind of racial tensions and all of these other things that are going on globally, that it's because what I want to say is 
not just people of color, not just disabled people or so on, have been saying these things for a long time. And it's only now that like, like JK Rowling is a good example of this, right? You know, it's only when it's affecting her and impacting her that now it's called cancel culture. Now that it's, you know, this kind of attitude or like with post-capitalism, I see a lot of people saying, oh, well, I, you know, this ethic of, I don't need to use money. And often it's very uh, privileged white people saying this. And instead, if we look at communities like the disability community is an excellent example of this. The mutual aid networks like here in London, right after the pandemic started, there was mutual aid groups that popped up all over, even in our borough. We're in Greenwich Borough and, you know, they all popped up. And you know what? In the group, immediately they were saying, you know what? We were not going to talk about politics here, even though it was the Tory government possibly doing the worst damage, not taking care of people, making choices. And in reality, what's happening? People of color are dying at higher rates and disabled people are 60% of the people dying are disabled here in this country. And they have DNR provisions put on them. So basically me having a conversation with my kids saying, you know what, we've got to make sure we nothing happens to us because we're not going to be the people who they're going to save, right? I mean, and my partner is visually impaired. So, you know, and I'm chronically ill. So what does that say? And it's really upsetting, right? This kind of thing, if we actually look at these communities of color and or disabled communities and their mutual aid ethic is very different. It's they are uplifting each other and it's not temporary. All of those mutual aid groups by and large have faded away within a few months. After the first wave, that's it. We don't I don't even hear about them anymore. And yet the mutual aid that I have with within the queer or neurodivergent or you know the subsets of all of these communities is we reach out for each other. We are checking in on each other. We're asking basic questions like, hey, this person's depressed. Did you brush your teeth today? You know, we're passing around the 20 pounds because you know, we know that this person needs it. You know, these kinds of things are the backbone of a lot of these communities. And I'm not faulting that a lot of more privileged people, especially in the global north, are it's just hitting them now because by and large, we've been sheltered from that. And yet every year in the monsoon season in South India, where my folks are from, different places are flooding. So they're like Bangladesh, they are like the climate crisis right now, people in the global South are dying and very little is changing in terms of attitude in the global North. Basically, I think people are kind of concerned too much about purity culture and that, the you know, like J.K. Rowling, you know, as we we're talking about, you know, she's punching down on trans and non-binary folks you know, and then now gets to scream foul that, oh, people are coming for her when her and the people around her continue to, you know, get uplifted. They're getting media attention. They are getting platformed. They're getting book deals. They're getting everything. And similarly, you know, where we're thinking about that we want to, like, we're facing climate destruction and we literally have 
less than a few years to correct that. And people are worried about which strategy. And then, you know, like we're watching, I mean, I remember the Kyoto Protocol. I remember all of these other ones and we're at COP26 and pretty much the global North has not taken any sizable action. And similarly, privileged people, this is not just people of color or just white people. I want to say it's all privileged people in general creating the most carbon thinking, oh, you know, do I get this car? Do I do this thing? You know, or policing people because of straw uses, single-use plastics or whatever, and not actually targeting those hundred companies that are creating the things like the military industrial complexes, even here in the UK, right? The Trident and other nuclear projects and so on. That's where the environmental destruction is coming from. And instead of putting our power together, and disrupting in as many places and as many ways as we can be, people are getting kind of, this is part of the individualistic culture that we have, right? That, And you know that whole thing, which is hilarious, is British Petroleum is a company that created this, that actually said your individual carbon footprint, right? They're the ones who created this language, that then puts it squarely on the individual. Yet companies like Shell and British Petroleum knew, just like R.J. Reynolds and the tobacco industry knew what was happening. These industry leaders have known for decades what was happening. The data was very clear and they have suppressed any sort of action. And now they want to profit on both sides. We want to profit on the oil making till that runs out. And then we also want to profit on the other side. And they're actually squelching any, you know, like it would basically be negative money for them to make if we had solar panels. That's where the place we're at. If we had wind and solar power, it would cost negative, meaning it would be free and it would actually pay people. That's where we're at. But the companies are sitting there having legislation. So us have a uh, being obsessed with purity culture doesn't do that. That's why I'm saying harm reduction strategies is yes, move our feet personally. Hey, I have influence here. I'm going to do something. But then collectively, we need to be sitting on the people making the laws because you know, we're being outfunded in every single area. And so like, in my opinion, we don't have time for purity of culture. We need a diversity of strategies because capitalism is working on a diversity of strategies. These organizations have media and indoctrination campaigns going on. They have laws and they're working in the legal systems. They are changing perception of individuals. They are, they're, like I said, outfunding this. They have the technology. They've got people in their pockets. So, you know, we need to be taking a diversity of strategies to back at them. One thing, Anurada, that has come up for me, especially when you're talking about purity culture, and earlier when you mentioned the topic of cultural appropriation, um, which you mentioned, you, you know, the yoga community, and it's not exclusive to Los Angeles, but I feel like here in LA, I certainly have fallen into this mentality of, well, yeah, but I'm a good person because I take my Ayurvedic herbs and I go to my yoga class and, you know, I drive my fuel efficient or my electric car and I only buy organic clothing and I'm reducing my plastic usage and, you know, the check boxes of things that show that I'm a good person, quote unquote, right? I, I put air quotes around that. 
But it brings up a phrase that I also learned through your work and your website, which I'd never heard this terminology of toxic belonging culture. And the way that I interpreted that, I'm curious what your definition, if you could educate us more on that terminology, what it means to you. The way that it sort of hits me is communities that people are doing certain things where they feel like they're being good global citizens, good allies, you know, look at me, I'm woke, right? Sort of this, this performative stuff and everyone's patting themselves on the back. But with what we're talking about, it's like, okay, but are you actually working with disadvantaged communities? Are you actually talking to and learning about people of color, neurodivergent people, differently abled people and what their actual life situation is? Or is it just simply a checklist of, yep, I'm eco-friendly, I'm vegan, I'm this, I'm that, I'm doing my part, everyone, look. Does that, I guess my question is like, if we find ourselves as part of toxic belonging culture and sort of doing this pat on the back, how do you recommend people like break away from that and actually start opening themselves up out of these insular communities and looking at actually what is happening in the world outside of their little privileged pocket? (laughs) Really good questions and places that I think we could spend a lot of time going into. You know, one of the things that first when you were talking, I made a note about it's basically what you're describing, purity in the I'm a good person is that is one of the hallmarks of whiteness. This is not specifically about white people. I want to be really clear on that because I've seen this in all communities. But some of the ways we're indoctrinated into whiteness is good versus bad. And so then we can also make the same kind of, you know, argument, white equals good, right? You know, so same thing. But or lighter in in our cultures, there's colorism, right? So it's like the closer you look to European beauty standards and whiteness and so on, right? Um, Asia, South Asia is famous for the lightning creams, skin lightning creams. So, you know, so these are all, what I would say is we have to challenge that. Th- this is where we can do our individual work. This is what we can do in community, like with people we're influencing, Right. Can we look at how that is? When people are confronted by, you know, their privilege, most people's reaction is not like, oh yeah, let me take that on board and let me do the inner work. It is, let me be performative and let me show that I'm actually doing something. Let me say that I'm not a racist or whatever the thing is. I'm not a transphobe or that I'm a good person. So even if that's true, you know, that that negates it. And the thing is with accountability is, and when we're talking about radical accountability is we often can be both. We can be someone doing the best we can in whatever situation. And that's the way I approach, whether that be personal growth work that I do with people or this consulting work is the assumption I'm going in with is you are doing the best you can in this situation. And once you know more and you've got these paradigm shifts that happen, you're going to be behave, show up differently. And so we want to be in a space where in our communities where we can challenge these things and not take it personally. Because the thing is, if someone's saying, you know, like with the racism piece, like I mean, this just happened to me yesterday. I'm, you know, using my name as my pronoun. And this white person comments and says something to the effect of, well, I don't believe in names because that puts humans above other species. I mean, I guess he's assuming that's like speciesist and which I thought, okay, fine. That's, but I said, that doesn't take away from the fact that it makes me be happy to be called and referred to by my name. 
And maybe with a common name, he has not had the experience like I have. You know, the two most common ways people refer to my name, the first way people refer to my name is, oh, that's a difficult name. I'm going to butcher that. I'm probably going to butcher that. I won't say it. So they don't ever say it. So that's the first way. Ignored. I don't even get like acknowledged. The second way is, hey, can I give you a nickname? Because that's too hard for me. Annie or Amanda or Andrea or whatever. And I'm like, that is not my name. So like people just don't say my name. So me to kind of radically say, hey, I want my name and I want that to be my pronoun is kind of me. And in fact, naming my business after like I just renamed it this year, the Kota Constellation, just in the last few months. So it's kind of a, rec a reclamation for me, right? And so that's the way I'm choosing to belong. Like right? I belong here, like belonging is such a question. I grew up in Arizona. So that's, I love the desert. I love the mountains. And yet I knew that that's not our land, right? That's we're settlers here. We are like, we're immigrant family. My parents immigrated to the US in the 70s. And I moved here to do my PhD, but I didn't actually do it because of a whole host of reasons. I started the business instead. So I don't feel like I belong here. It's colonial land, right? The land of the people who colonize my people. It's not my land. It's kind of like they have home turf here. And then when I go to India, I don't really belong there. Yes, it's the land of my people, but I might look the part, but the minute I start speaking or being, I don't really fit in there. So, you know, belonging is a thing that I really grapple with a lot. And I think you're talking about with the toxic belonging culture. Yeah, that what are we belonging to? Who are we? And, you know, we want to be grappling with those questions. I don't have an easy answer. That's why I brought up my own identity, because those are places I can spend time. And because of that positionality, people will often ask me, like, how do I tackle this stuff? Well, my master's research was looking at how did the British, when they came to India, how did they change this very specific dance form? It's called Bharatanatyam. And how did that rhetorical situation change when they came to India? So a very specific thing. How did that shape? And then my, my PhD work, which I said I didn't do, I was going to look at then in diasporic populations, in South Asian diasporic populations, how did that echo into the next generation? How did that shape identity? How did that shape who we are and how we behave? So, right. So I'm really curious and about this. And I don't think there's one way we can do that. And I think also some of your questions, it seems like you really liked that summit, that Radical Business Summit, because I think it was Mindy, I don't remember her last name, but Mindy was the one speaking on toxic belonging culture. But if your viewers are really interested to hear more, she did an excellent job. And same with the, you know, marketing beyond capitalism, like they have, that summit had some great speakers. So you can hear other people's thoughts on that. I want to take this in a little bit of a different direction for a moment. As an activist, as a change maker, someone who obviously is not only personally but professionally invested in teaching inclusivity and diversity and, and these paradigm shifts, I know for me, Anuradha, having worked as an activist in, in different ways, and I actually work for a nonprofit right now currently. We go back to what Whitney brought up about burnout and about the importance of taking care of ourselves. 
I think it's really easy, not only as a business owner, but certainly where there's an activism, activism component in our lives that is deeply passionate. It's easy to, I think, especially if you're an empathic person, if you're a sensitive person, I, for all our longtime listeners, uh, I've struggled with a lot of mental health issues for many, many years. And I find sometimes that it's difficult for me to, I don't know if be effective is the right terminology, but be working for change and be working in the nonprofit world and not just feel sometimes crippled by the weight of the suffering that I am viewing and that I am working to bring awareness to and bring relief to. For you as a neurodivergent individual, as someone who has, I think, you know, struggled in certain ways, maybe with, you know, mental health things I've read online, how do you find balance? How do you care for you in the midst of doing this work that you do in the world? And is that a struggle for you? Do you feel burnt out and times where you're just like, I can't do this. I need to go take a break. What's that like for you? What's your self-care like in that sense so you can keep going and keep doing what you do? That's so good. I love that you two are focusing on these kinds of questions because I think that's what really is going to help us continue to do the work because it's not, we need it to be sustainable, right? And one of the things that my partner and I talk about, my partner, Mariah Helms, we co-teach that class together, Sewing Post-Capitalist Seeds, is we teach about this framework from, oh, Joanna Macy, that's who teaches it. And she actually created this framework called The Work That Reconnects about how do we teach activists, because she she does invite, she inspires environmental activists, how do we keep doing the work? And so what I think is it's a cyclical thing. I mean, there's so many frameworks I can give you, but I'll share two that really have helped. One is this process of so many cultures really have a culture of grief, of honoring grief. And that could be grief like tears and so on. It could be fear. It could be rage. But we don't have general outlets for that in our culture, right? It's kind of, especially more so here um, because I live in England and that very stoic way of being is very different than the U.S., you know, Southwest United States culture of kind of perhaps a little bit more open and we can cry and we can laugh and, you know, like it's a little bit more different over here. So one of the things she talks about and, and certainly we talk about in our course is how can we bring those grief cultures and those grief practices to the forefront in our work? So that means allowing space for that. It means even in a call, even in a, like, I really loved the way you both in the podcast setup, you know, do you have a glass of water near you? You know, like these kinds of things, right? I used to be a public school teacher. So really thinking about the needs of the kids in the classroom, not treating them like robots, right? They're humans in a body. Let's remember that, right? Remembering our own humanity. Sometimes as I'm saying these things, it's a reminder to me, to my clients, to my kid, you know, so people around me, right? And then making the space where they feel comfortable to share that as well, right? I have this access need. I have, you know, this, uh, should we take a bio break, right? These kinds of questions. And then it just opens the door for people to say, oh, I can do that. And and grieving is part of that, the grief piece of crying or I'm just having an off day. And so can we go a little slower today or can we 
do a shorter call. Like, you know, these are parts of access needs. It, it could also making time to cry together or, you know, expressing our feelings in different ways. And then the other powerful practice I do is connecting with ancestors because we're not coming to this work, whether you believe in reincarnation, I mean, my culture does believe in reincarnation, but regardless of that, many cultures have an ancestor elevation or ancestor worship or ancestor connection in some way. And that could be people who are like directly related to us from the past, right? Blood relations, if you will. But it could also be communal ancestors, right? I think for, you know, the, like, I'm thinking of Toni Morrison's death. That was, you know, that she's an icon. She's done so many things, right? Or so on. We can find these people who are doing amazing work and we all share in that loss. And so that could be more of a community person, like I'm thinking of Robin Williams, right? You know, he touched so many lives. So he's kind of could be a considered a community ancestor in some way. So connecting to them, talking to them, understanding that where they came from and the lives that they lived, like we're not walking in, like we're standing on the shoulders of giants, right? Whether that, like, you know, the Harriet Tubmans of the world or here that we have, you know, we have people who have done amazing work here, like Stuart Hall, you know, they have been doing this work and they might be ancestors now, but they have paved the way for us to do the work that we can do now, right? They have led that way. So I think remembering them, honoring them, like, you know, this is kind of a little personal, but that I've done some ancestor work recently. And the thing that they were really asking me with a lot of, like, I felt it so deeply in my heart, like, don't forget us, you know, don't forget the contribution. That's, you know, a few generations back, we might not even remember people's names past our grandparents or their parents. So we could be forgotten. And yet remembering that, right. And making decisions like some indigenous tribes, like I think it's the Iroquois in the U S they're making generations, seven generations back and they're making seven generations ahead. So this kind of thinking is like not thinking individually. This is thinking as a community. And I don't know how much it really helps like in a practical day-to-day stuff, but I have found my life richer for it. And it's certainly a way to connect back with our rituals, with our customs, and like for us, our language so many languages because of colonialism we have lost land we have lost language we have lost people the global crisis is because of colonialism and right now what's going on to you know to be in solidarity right now what's going on in Wet'suwet'en so in British Columbia right now there is global destruction you know global warming destruction happening there in terms of flooding and lack of access and people without food and electricity and yet what is the Canadian police doing. They are sending troops and so on to Wet'suwet'en to put in that line, that pipeline, another pipeline where the tribal elders said, hey, this is a route you can put it in that's not of cultural importance and it is not of biodiverse area. Here you can put the pipe here, even though it's unseeded land. It's still, nobody gave that land up. And that you can see where their priorities are. And they said, no, we don't want that. We want to put 
the pipeline wherever we want to put it into a culturally important area. So when I think of this, like what are some of the things we can do? We have to be thinking about praying to the ancestors and being in solidarity and living and not living are ways to be in that. I I know it seems a bit weird. And if it's too weird out there, I, I can understand, but it gives me a lot of strength. And it's really inspiring because it's not something that I was raised to prioritize. It was a big focus on living family members, but and also beyond family, too, is part of your point. It, it's the whole community. And I think something that came up for me as you were speaking was how it seems like a lot of people struggle to do things for others because they're feeling so much within themselves. They're feeling burnt out, overwhelmed, anxious, as I said earlier. And it feels so much to just get through the day on their own that doing something for others feels too much. And sometimes people feel like they're doing so much for others that they lose track of themselves. And there's, of course, this whole idea that you have to put the oxygen mask on yourself first in order to help others. So it's a very holistic perspective of, of just everyone's taking care of themselves and others at the same time as the ideal. And I think about, as you brought up the environmental issues here, how throughout my career, having so much emphasis on eco-friendly actions, how much I've observed people struggling to do just the basic things like recycling. Like I've been shocked at how, to me, recycling is second nature. Now, whether recycling makes as big of a difference as I hope, (laughs) how much of that is wish cycling or whatever it's called, I, you know, it's tricky, but it's, it kind of goes back to, to this idea of like, I'm trying, I'm doing the best that I know at this moment. Whereas it, it's interesting to me how some people, that effort in itself, which seems so simple, they struggle with. And I feel like going back to what Jason said too, it can start to feel hopeless. It's like, wow, if somebody can't just put something in the recycling bin, then what hope do we have? If someone chooses something that's more wasteful than something else that's equally the in its equivalent, but better for the environment, what hope do we have? And I wonder if we've just become so disconnected from one another as some sort of oddly like coping mechanism. But yet if we want to survive, we need to come together more as a community. And for me, what's what's helped is when I did my recent cross-country trip, I got to see so much of the United States and it reconnected me with the country and not just the city that I live in, but how other people are living and how they're different. And seeing them, interacting with them, it actually gave me, I feel almost brought to tears by the deeper connection to other people in this country that I experienced. And and witnessing the kindness of strangers that so many of us forget about because we're not interacting with strangers. And sometimes we're not interacting at all. And also, as seeing the visuals of different parts of the country and understanding where things are, which I've noticed many people have barely traveled at all. So they don't have the perspective of seeing what it's like in Arizona or North Dakota or these areas where these people are living that live so differently from me, but or these things that are happening in different parts of the country or, you know, the the world nonetheless. I mean, when you're speaking about things that go on in India where I've never been, like I can only imagine based on what I've seen and been exposed to, but I've never witnessed it in person. 
And I would like to do more traveling because that reconnects me to the world in that deeper way. And I think travel, as much as it's a privilege, is important to prioritize as much as we're capable of so that we have a reason for choosing better action. And at the very least, though, conversations with people like you have helped on a deep level because you're reminding me, but you're also teaching me things that I haven't tried yet, like reconnecting or connecting first and foremost to ancestors of all different types. So I'm really grateful that you brought that up and also touched upon grief in the way that you did, which one thing I love about Jason is he, maybe it's the Southwestern person within him, even though he wasn't born here, but he's so good at connecting with his grief. But I know, Jason, sometimes you struggle to overcome it and it becomes so intense for you. And no wonder you ask that question. It's like, okay, sometimes we get so deep in our grief, we can't see the way out. So it's that balancing act of not falling too far into it where we completely lose sight of our purpose and our meaning in this world. So you've both given me lots of food for thought here. And I'm I'm just so grateful for this conversation. And I'm curious about your thoughts and perhaps a final topic for today's discussion is Anurata, what by the way, I don't know if you have said your name live on the podcast. Could you say it so that because I, I don't believe that I'm pronouncing it exactly how you would like it. And I was thinking earlier, like it'd just be nice to hear you say it so that our audience knows how to say pronounce your name so that you're fully seen here. Oh, thank you. That's very lovely. Yeah, my name Anurada. Anurada. By the way, it's so beautiful to look at and to say and to hear that it also felt sad to me when you said that so many people are avoiding your name. And it's such a beautiful thing. And that in itself is a lesson. Like sometimes we're confused by something, we feel uncomfortable with something, so we avoid it, but we're missing out on something as beautiful as a name like yours. And anyways, I'm curious, speaking of hope and taking action, what do you see on the horizon? We're getting close to the beginning of a new year. What things do you feel like you are personally going to focus on and you would like to see the world emphasize more so that we can start moving in more positive directions? Because I think some people are afraid of big changes right now. One that I'm paying a lot of attention to is technology and the metaverse and these digital communities. And I, f- I actually find hope because I think we're moving towards a place where people actually have new opportunities to come together. So for the metaverse example, which is the project that Facebook has morphed into, but also something that encompasses a lot of where technology is headed, the promise that I see within that, this new digital space that we are likely entering into is that it's actually giving people an opportunity to connect and represent themselves in a way that feels truer to who they are, which I find very exciting. But some people are really afraid of that. They're afraid that we're going to spend too much time online and that's going to actually take us away from connecting with the earth. So do you feel any of that or do you have other things that you're focused on right now that are of greater importance? What does the next year and beyond hold for you? Yeah, thank you for sharing those thoughts. I really appreciate the question. I think I'm hesitant to embrace those kinds of technologies because we still see the same ableism and whiteness and so on 
popping up when these technologies are used, right? I mean, people are surprised when I say that a lot of taps in bathrooms, if, and I'm not even that like, you know, paper brown, you know, paper bag test. I'm not that dark skinned. And there's taps that I cannot turn on because they won't pick up my skin color. So they don't work on black people or darker people's skins. So, you know, like we're just written out of things, right? We never see bandages. I mean, that's just a recent thing, bandages and multicolors, right? You know what I mean? So technology, as much as it's like somebody just wrote a book in medical medical racism of how skin conditions look on darker skin because all these medical textbooks only focus on whiteness. So it's like I could take you on a deep dive on almost every single, like so many topics of the dangers of if we don't look at these things. And, you know, there's people, mostly black people who are like stopped from using these platforms or trans people who can't use their names because it's not the legal name. So they can't use the name that they're comfortable with because they don't have the legal standing. So it's like, you know, if those things were connected, I think I could embrace those technologies because I think ultimately it could bring us closer together. As a biology educator, I'm concerned that a lot of natural words are being removed from the dictionary in So now Google and like that being used as a verb, that is supplanting words like for many types of trees or plants. So we're losing that. Not only are we losing the biodiversity, we're also losing the names and the understanding of what some of these plants do. So, you know, I think holistically, I think it could be a good thing as an educator. I think, hey, technology can help us. And I'd often advocate for my disenfranchised students to get them into the classroom. Anyway, you know, I got to teach. So I did that. But what projects am I interested in? I'm going to keep doing this of educating some of clarifying some of these points, because I hope that these kinds of conversations are paradigm shifting. Like one conversation I wish I had had today, I was in the doctor's office and you know, so it was a brown lady. So, you know, think, okay, I'm safer there than I would be in a white, as opposed to in a white male's office, right? So, because I have faced all sorts of medical gaslighting in my life where I'm not taken seriously, but she commented on my weight. And, you know, I just did a podcast yesterday on living your best fat life because we frequently talk about fat, you know, fat liberation as part of our work and body liberation. And I was thinking, I mean, I didn't have the wherewithal to correct her in that moment. But when I follow up with her, I'm going to say, you know, that's kind of fat phobic because that means she was praising my thinness, meaning if I had been fat, then she would have denied me treatment or access in some way. And that's I could use my thin privilege there. So I want to keep having these discussions, even, you know, where I am and where I have capacity to do those kinds of things, right? I'm not going to do it while she's treating me. I'll do it after. So I get what I need, but I want to bring this up, right? So having these kinds of conversations one by one or in classes and so on, that's on the horizon. I am relaunching, I last summer I did a, or last summer, a few months ago, summer, pandemic time certainly messed with my brain. So, you know, a few months ago, we did the Future is Accessible where I interviewed people on accessibility. And I'm going to be relaunching that and, you know, putting together some new features and so on. And I'm actually working on a project 
right now that I want to start showing, you know, um, creating PDFs of the most common questions I keep getting is from business owners who ask me about the consultancy, like, hey, do I need to do DEI work, diversity, equity, and inclusion work? How can I do this financially, like sustainably? You know, I'm thinking about hiring people. How do I diversify without tokenism? You know, so I want to answer some of these questions that I think a lot of companies, nonprofits, and people in the community activist spaces are asking themselves right now. Like, how can I make my work accessible? You know, these kinds of questions. I love that you're doing all that. I'm curious, do you have a page on your website where you have all of this organized and and do you have all of your interviews and podcast conversations like this in one page so if someone wants to go binge listen to everything that you've done, where's the best way for them to find it? I think the website's a little behind at the moment, but we're certainly adding those pieces. So the future is accessible would be ready in a few days and People can pay and then there's a learning portal. They can go and listen to all the talks. And then in the new year, we're going to be doing six live conversations where people can bring their questions about the HR or the hiring process or the company culture, their corporate social responsibility. And they can, we can talk about accessibility in those ways because one of the things that we talk about quite a bit in in this what what i was talking i'm going to bring back the harm reduction is we think corporate social responsibility is very different you know than accessibility and if we look at land access who has access well here in the uk as i said we've privatized so much land there is very little land and then there's not that much land available to poor or people of color, for instance. And then on public land, it's even less so. So you don't see people hiking in public spaces and so on. And you can see people of color specifically. And you understand why this happens. So one of the things is harm reduction strategies is challenging some of these things, right? Taking up space, being in those spaces, changing legislation to stop privatizing that gives us breathing room, right? Pushing off some of the harmful strategies or harmful laws that are coming down the pipe. Like if we can save the NHS for a little bit longer, that's a harm reduction strategy, right? So it's like combining these kinds of things. So they're all on my website, but they'll be popping up as we go. You know, that that's the thing with being someone who's chronically ill is I have bigger visions than I can do some days. And so the best way is if people are really interested, they can always email me or find me on social media. I love to talk to people. I love to connect. And so that's the best thing. Amazing. Well, we'll link to all of that. So it's very easy for our listeners to get in touch with you. Everything will be linked on our website, wellevator.com, which is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. If you go to the podcast section, can easily find this episode, type in a keyword, just look at recent episodes if you're listening to one recently when this came out. And at the very bottom of the page on the podcast site, you'll find all the links to get in touch with our amazing guest today. And throughout the transcript there, there'll be links to anything that we mentioned. So we try to make it easy for you to find the information you need and continue learning alongside us. And we're just so deeply grateful. And Jason, I'm curious, were there any final words before you do your official podcast episode closing today? 
Well, I actually had <laughs> I actually had one final question come up, and I feel like if we could just take a few minutes before I do the official wrap, because it feels sort of like a, a hanging indent mentally for me. Like if I in my mind it's just like, oh, you mentioned Anurada a post-capitalist world so many times during our talk today. And if there's a way for you to succinctly describe what that looks like for you, I'm very curious, what is your vision, your personal vision of what a post-capitalist world looks like and feels like for humanity? Wow, that's a huge question. All right, I will try to do that justice. <laughs> I would say some parts of this are really radical and some parts are just common sense, right? People should have access to food, water, shelter, and things like that that are needed for life shouldn't be charged for, shouldn't be for profit at the very least. So those are kind of things I think a lot of people can agree with in whatever way, right? Access to health insurance, access to, or not health insurance, but health health care access to education, right? These kinds of things. But I think more importantly, it's really being in community that right now we have this hierarchy in like even with people, right? That humans are above other animals, even though we are animals still, we kind of forget that. And when we're looking at animals, we have domesticated so many of them. And we actually are very choosy, right? There's this whole, there's several talks that I've heard talking about that we've preserving the prettiest animals, like, oh, snakes are kind of scary. We're not going to preserve those, but we are going to preserve these cute otters. We, we find otters adorable, whatever. So this kind of like this prettiness, the fatness, the right, the who deserves to live or not, like here in the UK, like I said at the beginning, who has access, like we're basically deciding who's going to live or die in this pandemic. And so when we allow one person to die, that means we're all thinking who, who we're making choices to say you're worthy of life and you're not, or this habitat is worth protecting for this animal and this one's not. And what I think radically we need to be doing to be in a post-capitalist world is for not forgetting our place or remembering our place in the universe, remembering our place with each other, the relationships we have to each other. What do we owe to each other, right? That because it's really easy for us to think, oh, I put on my own oxygen mask. Well, that's what the whole global north is doing at the expense of the global south. So that idea is not working. We need to be doing both, right? We need to be making income so we can thrive, but we also need to be redistributing the fuck out of those resources where we can. We need to be removing barriers. So it would be a fat person going into a doctor's office, getting the things they need met without being first told they need to be lose weight before they can get any treatment, right? Same with let's say top surgery or bottom surgery for gender, you know, for people who are having gender confirmation surgeries. That's the truth, right? They have to crowdfund these things. They aren't seen as 
people do, like I, I don't even bother to have the gender argument with my physicians because I'm like, I'm not going to win and I have to save my precious energy because I already know I'm going to be medically gaslit and I have a history of trauma. So the, I'm going to put my spoons and my energy into that. But being able to walk into those places and know that where our needs are going to be met, that we take someone from like that we can have global solutions about how we deal with climate change, but very specific things. Like here in London, we have the London barrier, but people outside the London, like we're outside the London barrier. It's the Thames, there's a Thames barrier that they put up these walls to stop the rising sea level, but only inner parts of London are covered. The outer parts are not. The rest of the Thames estuary, there's lots of people who live along the Thames estuary are not protected. From that. And the Thames is a tidal river. So it's so globally, yes, we need to have good technology and all of these other things. But locally, what do we need to do is very different than I grew up in Arizona and I was a teacher in New Mexico. The water solution is very different. We don't have enough clean water. We've channeled water from the like in Albuquerque, we're using aquifer water. And we're not replenishing that water fast enough right now. And in Arizona, they've dug diversion channels from the Colorado River. That's what they're using as drinking water, unsustainable solutions. So what they're going to do about their water situation is going to be very different than what we're doing here in London. But that we all come together and we look at that positionality. We look at what's here that we can work on. And there's a lot of things we can be doing here to make sure people have access to clean drinking water, access. I mean, here, food bank usage here in the UK is alarmingly high for we're being the sixth richest country in the world. There are literally starving kids. So I think we can like do that better. And we can say, we can still all live in luxury. We don't need to all live in poverty, right? So when we say we got to share resources, it's not like, oh, now everyone has to go live in huts. It just means everyone has access to what they need and we don't need to take keep extracting from the earth, from each other to get by. We actually can replenish. We can put things back into the soil, back into the earth, back into our communities to uplift people. Thank you for such a well thought out, eloquent, and soulful answer. You've just injected the whole conversation with such a spirit of heartfulness and education. And it's been an absolute pleasure, Anurada, having you here to learn from you, to feel your spirit. And thank you for sharing all of these resources and perspectives with us and our audience today. Really appreciate having you here. Thank you for having me. I loved it. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.